Well, you, you probably noticed there, if you, if you turn to 1 Samuel 12, that the, uh, the heading that the publishers of your Bible put in for you, uh, it might say something like uh, Samuel's farewell speech or something to that effect. Mine, the CSB, it says Samuel's final public speech. Um, and so there's that heading over, over the chapter, which is, which, which is helpful. We know it's not actually part of the text of Scripture itself. Uh, but the publishers have put that in there to help us, which, which can be helpful as we go through the Bible. It kind of gives us main, uh, main headings to consider as we're reading. Um, except when it comes to 1 Samuel 12, it's not altogether right to think of this uh, merely as Samuel's farewell speech. It's not a retirement speech on the part of Samuel. Uh, now, now, he does refer to himself in verse 2 as being old and gray. Uh, he'll speak about the nature of his ministry from his youth now to this time uh, with, his, with, with the people there. And, and there's obvious truth to the fact this is the last big recorded public speech that we get from Samuel. Um, but with all that, he's not retiring quite yet. It's his final longest recorded sermon, but it's not his retirement word to the people. Um, and we know that for a couple reasons. One, he lives about 30 years beyond the event that's recorded here. We know that just from putting things together in the narrative. And secondly, at the very end of the narrative, what does he say he's going to do? He says, I'm going to keep praying for you and I'm going to keep teaching. So I'm not, I'm not done with my ministry yet. Um, and so while it will take a different form now that there are kings in Israel and Samuel's position as one of unique and soli uh, solitary authority, in a sense, is going to move to the narrative periphery with, with Saul being there for our attention and then David and so on. Saul's not, or Samuel's not quite done yet. So in coming to this passage, it, it does become evident that rather than thinking about this as a kind of retirement sermon on the part of Samuel, it actually helps us to think more directly about the content of what he says. And as we do that, we see that it's not a retirement sermon so much as it's a renewal sermon. Um, you, you remember the context of the speech is set up at the end of chapter 11 for us, where Samuel has called the people uh, to, a, to a kingship, or we could translate that kingdom, uh, renewal ceremony. And this renewal sermon that Samuel preaches is on that renewing occasion. So, so it makes sense to think about it in this way, especially as we get into, as we get into what's here. Uh, so we don't have a retirement sermon. We have a renewal sermon. And, and with that in mind, uh, we, we can set the context for, for what's going on. So let's, let's think about this a little bit. Um, just speaking in the most general terms, we know that renewal is a big part of life. Uh, there are all kinds of, of different aspects of our experience where we find ourselves in a place of, of restarting something or, or returning to something, maybe to re-engage in something. Renewal is a regular uh, part of our experience. Uh, for example, I've recently renewed my commitment to stretching because on my attempts to, in my attempts to jog in the morning, I keep hurting myself, and Julia makes fun of how I put my socks on in the morning uh, because, because I'm not very flexible, so I've renewed uh, a routine there. Uh, with, with results that are less than glamorous, but, but we renew ourselves in physical routines. We renew friendships. We, we know what that's like. Old friendships uh, come back into our life. We're very thankful for that. Friendships can be renewed. Uh, renewal is a, is a wonderful thing. Uh, in fact, I was thinking about this because uh, last Sunday evening, which we talked about with some of you, but last Sunday evening, our family went to Portland's symphony performance of, of the soundtrack to the movie Princess Bride, which was, which was amazing. So the symphony plays along with the soundtrack as you watch the movie. And, and, and there was a huge crowd that was there at Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall, and they all knew the words to the movie. They all applauded at the right time. I mean, who, who doesn't have that movie memorized to a certain degree? Um, and, and, and after 
all this isolation that we've had dealing with COVID, it just really struck even Julie and I, as we were talking about this, how, how refreshing it was, how renewing it was to get out uh, in, in the context of public places and enjoy a collective human experience together. It was very renewing uh, to, go to, to, go to, this, to go to this event. So, so all that to say, renewal is a part of life. We're used to it. It's something that affects us in, in many different aspects and corners of our own uh, personal experiences. And while renewal affects all different aspects of life, one of the most important places where renewal occurs is in the context of our lives of faith. Uh, we go through seasons of needing spiritual renewal as followers of Jesus, and that's something that we become familiar with in the course of our Christian life. And in 1 Samuel chapter 12, the narrator brings us along in this account of a time where spiritual renewal took place in the life of Israel. Uh, we remember from our, from our study last time that King Saul, by God's help, of course, uh, King Saul, he, he worked this great victory for the people of Israel. Uh, Nahash the Ammonite was going to bring great harm on Israel, but uh, through Saul's victory, he led this assault on Nahash that, that ended in victory for Israel. So, so there's this great cause to rejoice. And after that victory, we have the people called to this, this kingdom renewal ceremony there at the end of chapter 11. And then for Israel, this call to renewal is, is necessary for a couple reasons. Uh, one reason that it's, it's necessary is because the kingdom itself has been a bit at odds internally. So politically speaking, renewal was needed. Uh, remember how when Saul was a confirmed publicly as the king, there were these dissenters among them, those who didn't bring Saul gifts, those who said Saul can't really deliver us. And, and so this kingdom renewal ceremony helped to solidify the fact that the people of Israel are basically saying we're all in with Saul now. We're all in with him as king. After all, he's brought us this amazing deliverance from Nahash and all that's gone on there. So, so kingdom renewal was necessary because there'd been concerns and, and, and maybe the beginnings, the rumblings of divisions politically, uh, but those have now been put to rest. So so it's a, it's a time for renewal. But we also know that, that the biggest reason Israel needed renewal as, as now the kingdom of God's people, the biggest reason is not really centered on these dissenters in the kingdom. Uh, the big problem was really the big problem that Samuel keeps bringing up every time he has a chance to talk publicly as we read it in the narrative. The big problem is a spiritual one. It's not a political one. We know that the people of God are idolatrous. So they've wanted to place their trust in a king like the nations instead of trusting in the living God. There's, a, there's an idolatry problem. They're thinking that relief is going to come from somewhere else other than the living God who's been so faithful to them. In fact, it's interesting. One of the ways Samuel references this in our chapter, uh, which is a very vivid, it's, it's vivid imagery that he uses here, down in verse 21, if you want to look there, two times Samuel uses the word tohu. Um, it, it, it's translated in verse 21 as worthless in the CSB. I think if you're reading from the ESV, it might say empty, uh, but it's the Hebrew word that indicates something is, is totally void of life-giving substance. That's, that's what it means. In fact, we've talked about this before, but in Genesis 1 verse 2, we have uh, the created order described, you remember, as formless and void. And there's that rhyme in Hebrew in Genesis 1. God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was tohu vavohu. Right, the earth was, was without substance. It was empty. It couldn't sustain life at that point. And that's the word, uh, that void of substance word is the word tohu, which Samuel uses here to describe Israel's idolatry. They've been chasing empty things, um, which in fact, uh, later Isaiah brings this word in again when he talks about idols that the people have been serving, where he says idols have, have non-existent works 
And then Isaiah says, their wind and emptiness, their wind and tohu. So that word comes up again in the prophets. So you see, this gets right at the heart of what's going on in Israel. Israel has turned away ultimately to emptiness. That's what idolatry is. It's a, it's a turning away from the living God to things that, that can't really satisfy. It's a turning away from the living God to something that ultimately has no life-giving substance. They've wanted a king like the nations, and we know the Lord's been gracious and, and granted some relief through Saul, but we see what Saul really is like. No, Saul is an incompetent person. Saul is a coward. He can't really, on his own, satisfy the people's needs. He's, he, in and of himself, is even going to be proved this way. He's going to be like the wind. Saul is emptiness for the people. Um, but Israel's gone after trusting in emptiness rather than the Lord's provision. So Samuel's going to call him to this spiritual renewal. This is, this is the matter of, of first importance here, even more important than their political renewal. Uh, they need to be brought back to a place of ultimately repentantly trusting uh, in the living God. And like Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians, which we regularly remember when we study the Old Testament, Paul reminds us that, uh, that in these Old Testament stories, we find uh, more than something that's just intriguing with regard to Israel's volatile history. Uh, when we study these Old Testament stories, Paul reminds us that we actually find things here for our example. Um, and, and, and we can feel that, especially in a text like this, because it's not just Israel who needs renewal. We know from our own spiritual walks, we need renewal so oftentimes. We can be very acutely aware of our need uh, to be renewed as followers of Jesus, uh, simply because we can be honest with ourselves and, and recognize that we do go after what's tohu. We go after what's empty. Right? We can chase after emptiness. We chase after things that are ultimately void of, of life-giving substance, thinking that those things are going to bring the satisfaction I long for, thinking that those things are going to bring the rest that I long for, the, the peace that I long for, the purpose that I, that I want to hold on to. But we can find ourselves in seasons chasing after what's empty, uh, only to be called back then to this place of true life. And then that's exactly what this passage does for us this morning, because through this word, uh, the Lord not only is addressing Israel, but this is living and active. He speaks to us and he helps frame and compel spiritual renewal for us and in us as we consider the truth that's here. And so we come expectantly to the text this morning and, and we just say, again, instead of a retirement sermon from Samuel, better to say we have a spiritual renewal sermon. And from this, again, we can be encouraged, uh, whether, whether we're immediately feeling our need for for renewal in the Christian life, or whether that time is going to be something we face just around the next corner, uh, these seasons do come. And this is, this is a good gospel medicine for us, a passage like this. Uh, so with that said, well, we'll get right into the text. You can follow along as we go. Um, again, we're not thinking retirement sermon, we're thinking renewal sermon. We'll just make it through verse 11, and we'll do so with two points. Uh, the first one being that uh, Samuel starts here by reviewing his leadership. He begins by reviewing his leadership. Um, leadership, as we know, in any context, is a matter of critical importance. Uh, you probably read how Elon Musk now owns 42 million shares of Twitter. He, he has, as all the headlines keep saying, he now has a seat at the table, whatever that means. Uh, but, but, but people are either very excited about that or very concerned about what that will mean because, because leadership matters, and we know that. Those, those who have this responsibility of guiding or directing, whether they've come by it naturally or whether they've purchased that position of power, whatever it may be, uh, they make a difference, as we know, people in leadership. 
And, and Samuel begins this call to renewal by putting his own leadership on trial. Uh, so without uh, getting into every single detail here, we, we can note that Samuel basically says, I'm getting older, I'm getting older, and then he says, my sons are with you, which, which we'll just take a quick note and, and see that he doesn't say my sons are over you, he says my sons are with you. He, he's reminding the people that while he, he, he was, had placed his sons in positions of kind of spiritual leadership way far away from him because they ended up being corrupt and all of these things. Remember, the people came to him, said, we can't have your sons leading us. We need a king. That whole uh, thing went on earlier in the narrative. And Samuel's saying, I listen to you. They're not over you. There they are. They're out with you in public. Probably they're hanging their heads a little embarrassed at this moment, but they're not over the people. Samuel listened to them. Uh, and instead, uh, he, he uh, appointed a king for them. So Samuel's given them a king like they asked for. Uh, and up to this point in his ministry, Samuel's saying that he has acted then in a righteous way as the people's primary leader. Again, he's going to step back from being a primary leader as King Saul now takes the stage and then David and so on. Uh, but Saul is, is still active, which we'll see. However, with all that in mind, Samuel makes the point that during these years where he has been Israel's primary leader, he's conducted himself in total faithfulness. Um, it's actually interesting to note in verse 3 how I think when, when, when we get to meet Samuel someday uh, in, in, in glory, we're going to find that he's a very sarcastic person. He'll probably be really fun to hang out with. But, but he gets a little sarcastic here in verse 3 uh, because he, he brings up uh, this taken problem. So he says to them that he hasn't taken their oxen, for example. And if you remember back in, in chapter 8, when Samuel was warning the people of, of asking for a king like the nations, what was one of his big points of warning? Well, a king is going to come and do what? He repeats it a bunch of times, I think five or six times. A king is going to come, take, 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 take. In fact, when Saul is, is in charge back in chapter 11, when this war is coming, um, it's ironic that Saul's first real act of kingly authority back in chapter 11 was to threaten to do what? Kill everybody's oxen. He's going to take them in, in death, whatever that is. But, but he's going to destroy their oxen. And what, is, and what does Samuel say right here? He's pointing this out in a subtle way. He hasn't taken anything from the people, not even oxen. Wink, wink. Right? It's a bit of an I told you so moment. He, he's, not, he's not treated them in poor ways like a king would or has. Right? And, then, and then Samuel tells the people to bring charges against him if he's done any other, any other kinds of things wrong. There's a whole bunch of court language all throughout this passage. And here Samuel basically opens up his ministry for, for a court review, which is a very brave thing to do. We wonder, what are the people going to say? Will, will they have grievances about his leadership? And as it turns out, they have no grievances about his leadership. And the amazing thing is that there's no criticism leveled. There's no uh, accusation of wrongdoing from the people. Uh, we read there in verses 4 and 5 that they absolutely affirm Samuel's righteous leadership. He's, he's treated them... Um, justly in his time as their as their primary leader and and he's done so from his youth to now uh, this time where he's where he's old and gray as he says he's exercised faithful ministry this is something the people affirm which if we can just say is extraordinarily refreshing right? here we have an example of a man who who no doubt had imperfection samuel wasn't perfect he wasn't faultless but he was faithful and he was faithful as a servant of the Lord for a long time, from youth to gray hair. And just that alone is an encouragement, isn't it? 
We can just camp on that for a moment because we don't hear about people like this often enough. We hear about the failures. It seems like hardly a month goes by without another pastor being outed or a person in church leadership being investigated for some kind of unfaithful activity that reflects some kind of spiritual responsibility where they've morally fouled out in some way. These stories get the press and they're distressing, but it's good to remember that there are always Samuels. And there are far more Samuels than there are the others as we think about the kingdom of God in general. In fact, I'm meeting with, with one of my old pastors this week. He's recently become a district minister. So he's up in Portland all the time now uh, for the North American Baptist denomination. And, and I noticed this on Facebook. So we ended up connecting. I haven't seen him in about 10 years, but, but he has been faithfully pastoring for about 30 years now, still loves Jesus, still loves his wife, still loves sound doctrine, still sacrificially serving the church. You'd never know his name, but he is a faithful guy. And I can't wait just to have coffee with him. It's going to be so refreshing. You know, from youth to gray hair, faithful. So, 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 so the faithfulness of Samuel, just in general here, is something to notice and just be relieved by. It's a breath of fresh air in the narrative. And then with that, uh, given the specific nature of this section, it, it's also helpful. In fact, it's, it's very central to notice the ministry of faithfulness of Samuel in relationship to this renewal that he's calling for. Okay, by, by the end of this chapter, Israel's going to be repentant. They will be moved uh, forward toward a renewing posture of faith before the Lord. By the time this sermon is done, this will be an effective sermon. And, and, and we just can't miss the reality that, that what is ultimately then an effective call to spiritual renewal is coming from one who has proved himself before the people as a faithful leader. As, as many of us, pro probably all of us at this point, at least many of us, have experienced the fact that one of the most anti-renewal things we can encounter in our Christian lives is unfaithful spiritual leadership. It's one of the most anti-renewal things we can ever experience. There's, there's very little that's more disturbing to the renewing of our faith than unfaithful leadership. Whether it's in the home, whether it's in the church, this principle holds true. Unfaithful leadership is so damaging to the process of renewal for people. And that damage can be for, for a variety of reasons. I mean, we, can, we could go on about this for a while. But, but if we just think about this in a couple ways, it may just be that leaders, uh, while, while they might be the most loving people in the world, it may be their message is corrupt. <laughs> you know, it may, it may be that they have confusion around what the gospel really is. And so renewal doesn't come to us because we've suffered under these leaders and their bad theology. So maybe we've been taught uh, that, that we need to make ourselves acceptable before God, before God will ever accept us. We need to, we need to um, gain this extra modicum of righteousness so that God will have us. And of course, no renewal is taking place then in our lives because we're being called to do what only Jesus could do. And so there we are, uh, kind, of, kind of festering around without, without that newness of life that we need. Faulty spiritual leadership can impede gospel renewal uh, simply through a corrupt message, as nice as the individual may be. Right? Or faulty spiritual leadership can impede renewal because the leader's lives are corrupt, which breaks our confidence in the gospel's power. And, th and this, is, this is the one that happens so oftentimes. This is the most common uh, damage-causing situation. So there's a spiritual leader who's important in all our lives. We say, look at that person. Uh, they, seem, they seem so faithful. They seem to be walking in the way uh, that's worth imitating, and they've been a great help to us over time. But then their failure is exposed. And in that, it becomes clear that the gospel power they've been speaking about and teaching about isn't a gospel power that they've actually been yielding to. It's, it's not affecting them righteously. And what happens? 
well, those who've otherwise been affected positively by the leader, those people aren't renewed, are they? In the least, they are troubled. They're brought down. They're discouraged. Our confidence can be broken in the power of God to work in our lives because look at the messed up life of that person over there who seemed to have great knowledge and a great uh, ability to understand the things of God. And so rather than renewal taking place, we're, showed, uh, we're, we're slowed way down. We're discouraged. There's this sense of hopelessness that can set in because if the good news about Jesus isn't alive for them, what's the logic that follows? How in the world could, ever, could it ever be alive for me? But here in this passage, we have Samuel, the faithful servant of God, reviewing his leadership with the people. Bring charges against me if I've wronged you in any way, he says. And they say, no, you haven't wronged us. And this is where Samuel's renewal sermon really begins, from a place of vindication, from a place of long-term proved faithfulness as a leader. And we can just say from right here, this is why Christ's ministry is so extraordinary, extraordinarily potent and central for us as Christian believers. In Samuel's faithfulness, faithfulness, he's revealing our need to be called to continual renewal by a vindicated, faultless leader. This is, this is the great antidote to those who fail us ultimately. Our, our, our ultimate call to renewal as Christian believers, our call to humbly recognize our sin, our call to, 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 to recognize the empty kinds of things that we've been chasing after to satisfy us instead of the living God and all he provides. That renewing call isn't sourced in a pastor or mentor figure in our lives who may fail us or may not. That renewing call comes from Christ. That's why even when certain leaders falter, while we might be discouraged by that, we are ultimately not derailed in a life of Christian renewal by that because Jesus, the perfectly faithful and faultless one, he's the one who calls us to return. We, we, we don't look around at those around us and say, well, I guess I can't do it because they couldn't do it. I can't do it either. No, that, that actually is antithetical to the gospel. Instead, we look to Christ and say, because he did it, and because he promises me his resurrection power to live that new life he purchased for me because of his perfection, which has now been granted to me by God, and because of his power, which now dwells in me by the Spirit of God, because of Jesus, no one can ultimately disrupt my repentance and my renewal in, in, in the way of life because Jesus is the faithful leader in whom there is zero fault and all saving potency. And he's calling me no matter who may stand up or come alongside or whatever else in my life, which is a good reminder for us. In fact, it's, it's diagnostic for us because if we feel unrenewable, if, if we get to a place where we think, you know, maybe this isn't for us, that's actually an indicator that, that we've probably stopped looking to the one who calls us from a place of proved faithfulness and promised power. Jesus doesn't call us from a place of our proved faithfulness. We are not. We fail. But Jesus doesn't fail. And he calls us to return to him. Uh, he calls us to stop looking down and all around and looking in. He says, look up, look to him, see his glory, see his strength for his people, see his promises to continue to sustain us, which have been proved uh, by what we're going to talk about next Sunday. They've been proved by his resurrection. He's the life-giving life one. 
And so this, this ultimately helps orient us in our own gaze. We look to Jesus, the faithful leader of redemption, and he is the, the, the chief caller to us as we're brought to a place of renewal consistently in the Christian life. Uh, not because somebody failed or somebody didn't fail, but because Jesus himself is steadfast in his faithfulness and promises us the power to return and return and return and return. So, so Samuel's own ministry points us in that direction. Before Samuel's direct call to renewal for the people, it's just important to note that he reviews his own leadership and he's vindicated. He's a faithful man calling for people to return to the way of the living God. So Samuel reviews his leadership. Secondly, um, and lastly, as this is just a two-point sermon, um, in, in this call to renewal, we also notice that Samuel uh, then recounts the Lord's works. So he moves from reviewing his leadership now recounting the Lord's works. Uh, and this is verses 6 to 11. Uh, growing up, I can remember watching a lot of Perry Mason reruns. Maybe you watched Perry Mason reruns or maybe real time. I don't even know when they aired. They were black and white. I just remember watching them in black and white. Um, but uh, but he, he always was a master of getting just the right witness he needed to make his case stick. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was always how he could do it. And, and here... Uh, Samuel's making a case against Israel because of their spiritual idolatry. And we, we recognize the courtroom kind of language that's going on in these verses. And Samuel now calls the most potent witness of them all. Uh, he, call, he calls the Lord to witness against the people. I mean, there's no better witness. So let me, let me just read verse six, verses 6 and 7 again. And then that, that'll help set the tone for what's going on here. Um, verse 6. Then Samuel said to the people, The Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and who brought your ancestors up from the land of Egypt is a witness. Now present yourselves or now stand. It's, it's courtroom language. There. Now stand so I may confront you before the Lord about all the righteous acts he has done for you and your ancestors. So the Lord is called as witness, witness here. Um, and Samuel confronts the people from this place of ultimately recounting the Lord's uh, extraordinary historical works on behalf of his people. Uh, bringing them salvation. He, say, he says to them, in a sense, look at, look at what he's done for you. So Samuel starts back in Egypt. If you look at verse 8, uh, we, we read there about how when the people uh, were in bondage, they cried out to the Lord there and God saved them. But then in verse 9, they forgot the Lord. So he handed them over to Sisera and some others. In verse 10, uh, they cried out to the Lord again. The people admitted they abandoned him for false gods. They asked for rescue. And again, the Lord rescued them. In verse 11, as Samuel lists out, a few of the judges that the Lord sent, including himself. Uh, we remember how he was used by the Lord back in chapter 7 to bring rescue uh, from, the, from the Philistines. Um, so the Lord worked through others to bring this rescue. And, and in all this, Samuel is emphasizing the fact that when the people called to the Lord, he brought them extraordinary deliverance. And, and even with that, they continued to trust in false gods like Baal. Um, when they trusted in false gods, then the Lord would bring them to a place of feeling their need. Uh, they would experience some of those covenant curses that God promised from Deuteronomy 28 as they're living there in the land and they turn to idols. They'd experience those things. Uh, and, and then they would, they would uh, be rekindled again to turn to the Lord when their enemies started overrunning them. There's this cycle uh, that's going on in the passage, which we're, which we're familiar with just from the book of Judges. Um, but, but we see time and time again that the Lord brings salvation to his people when they've been gone in sin as they call out to him and, and ask for rescue. The Lord saves when his people call. And in the context of renewal, the, the truth that Samuel is communicating here is, is very important for us to, to meditate on 
um, for, for a few reasons. I'm just going to think out a couple of them here with you. So let's think about this. First of all, there is this continued cycle of failure on the part of the people that we just need to acknowledge. Uh, the people of Israel habitually return to what Samuel will call tohu later on in verse, in verse 21. So, so they return to emptiness again and again, generation after generation. They return to these false gods, Baal and the Ashtoreths, uh, to name a few uh, that, are, that are here. Um, they gave into this temptation of trusting in things that can't really bring, bring relief. And this, and this uh, cycle of idolatry, really it does make us think about Paul's statement to the Corinthians when he says that no temptation has seized you except that which is, and the, and the Greek word Paul uses is anthropos. So no temptation has seized you except that which is human. Human. And, and we see that the humanness of the struggle here in Israel's habitual sin. And, and, and the recognition, really, of that perennial struggle is part of what Samuel is drawing their attention to here. They, they need to see this. God rescues, but then they chase after what's empty. God rescues, but then they chase after what's empty again and again. And oftentimes, that we can think that the, that the distance we may feel from God or the struggles of sin that keep resurfacing in our lives, we can feel like those things make us somehow less than normal spiritual creatures but this helps, us to, this helps to remind us that that's just not the case. It's not, these things come to us. They came to Israel time and time again. Humanity in our fallenness and in our brokenness, sinful hearts and all of these things, we have a tendency towards chasing after emptiness. It's anthropos. It's a human thing. We, we just kind of bend toward what is void, thinking that will fill the void. That's the human distorted condition. Israel did it again and again. And recalling our own experience with the Lord and his works, we need to remind ourselves that this, this is a thing that we find ourselves experiencing as well. Chase after the wind, which seems so silly. We do this. We feel the folly of it when we do it. And while it's not excused, it's something to be aware of because we're reminded that, that in, the, in the temptations to emptiness, at the, at the very least, we're not somehow less than spiritual individuals we're not uh, somehow less than the norm of humanity we can find ourselves cast so down by these things but instead at least we can be encouraged by paul's kind of language and then what we see here this is a human thing this is a human thing that goes on however we also have to say that these failures are not the final word even these cycles of failures are not the final word because the lord is the one who doesn't leave us in those seasons perpetually chasing emptiness and we see that in in what samuel is saying here as well because just like the lord does for israel here when we get tangled up in emptiness the lord doesn't leave us to that but he brings circumstances into our lives that make us aware of that emptiness we've been hoping in. doesn't he do this this is our experience he brings us into circumstances that make us feel at the end of our own strength, the end of our own ingenuity, make us see the fact that I've been relying on things that can't really satisfy. So, so just like the Philistines or the Moabites uh, waging war against Israel made them feel their, their actual helplessness and hopelessness when they trust in these false idols as they're getting crushed in these, in these battles, like Israel, we're brought to an awareness that our only hope is the living God through some of these circumstances. We, we were just brought to see that. And that's, and that's what's going on here with the enemies of the people of Israel as they face them. They think idols can satisfy. The Lord shows them that idols can't really deliver them from anything. And so behaviors and beliefs that are contrary to the power and kindness of God, all of these things, uh, these, these things that oppress and harm and hurt and all of these things, the Lord shows us that they actually can't help. And he, and he brings those consequences upon us at times to punctuate that reality. 
And, and, and we see how it is, in the end, the Lord's great grace to do so. It's the Lord's great grace to show us the damage our idolatry can cause. Because what do the ex these experiences of pain in Israel's history do? What do they do in this passage? What do they cause us to do? Well, these experiences of folly-induced pain, they cause us to see where actual true hope is found. They turn us around. We were brought to return to the Lord and find in him the hope that we need. It brings us to this place of renewal. What does Israel do? They cry out. We cry out. So Paul will say, no temptation has seized us except that which is human. And then what does Paul go on to say? Well, the living and true God, he also promises that he will provide a way of escape. He's, he's the rescuer. We, we call to him and we find rescue. Can, can you imagine how dark and void of grace our lives would be if the Lord left those empty things in our lives as if they were satisfying us, how dark and graceless would that be? Could there be a greater darkness than to actually be left thinking the answer is genuinely found in that tohu? The great grace of God to Israel, the great grace of God to us, is he never ultimately leaves us thinking that chasing what's empty actually brings light. He doesn't leave us there. Instead, what does he do? Well, I mean, you just think about your own experience. He brings conviction, doesn't he? Right? He brings, brings us to see the damage our sin produces. He brings us to feel our distance from him. All of these things are an expression of extraordinary grace. You, you read this section, and, and the army of Hazor and the Philistines and the, and the king of Moab, what, what we see in this text is that these armies who fought against Israel and brought hurt, they were also the driving force for what? That hurt is a driving force for renewal. For me to see, this actually is de devastating for us. So, so their activity against Israel actually drove Israel from trusting in emptiness to trusting in the living God. And the, these are the Lord's works that, that Samuel recalls. They're dark providences, but, but they occur on the other side of empty trusting, which bring us ultimately to a point of calling out and saying, oh Lord, I've been chasing the wind again. I've been thinking that answers and strength and relief could be found outside of the significance of who you are again. Please help me. Please rescue me. I've thought the ultimate answer was in a social program or a cultural paradigm for flourishing, but here I am lost again. Or I thought the answer was in a political agenda, but here I am hopeless again. I thought the answer was in that book or that group or that way of thinking, but it's all empty. It's all formless and void. And so here I am down again, and I need you to rescue. And, and so when we're speaking about matters of spiritual renewal, it's just critical to notice that even the darkness of, of pain and damage is actually an indicator of the Lord's active presence engaged to draw us back to himself. He lets us feel the, the Moabite armies, if you like, so that, so that we'll return and say, oh God, I need, I need you to save. In the context of renewal, Samuel recounts the works of the Lord in this way because the Lord's program, as outlined in this passage, is to hear his people in their sin-induced distress and do what? Leave them there? No. Send them a deliverer. Send them a deliverer. Time and time again. And while this passage has so much more to say about renewal, which we'll, which we'll talk about more in two weeks, um, while, while there's more to be said here, this may be one of the most important things of, of all in terms of what Samuel's bringing up. If we like, this is a kind of ground zero of spiritual renewal here. Because when we find ourselves down, when we find ourselves low and needing to have our heads lifted up, uh, th this is really where things begin, uh, which is actually what Samuel will bring up again down in verse 24 with his application points at the end. He says, we must consider the great things the Lord has done. 
We must recount his works. And those works are often done, they're often recounted out of periods of significant darkness as we realize those are the times the Lord has used to bring us back to himself. Spiritual renewal doesn't begin by any kind of conjuring or any kind of system or any kind of manipulation of feelings. It begins by bringing to mind what God has done historically and calling out to him again presently to save me. We call out to him and ask, bring renewal, bring rescue. You're the God who's brought us the greatest historical rescue of all. The cross of Jesus Christ proves God's climactic rescuing power. You're the God who's brought redemption from sin's bondage. In Jesus, your mighty saving works have been put on display. And I'm bringing those things to mind as I now ask you in your mercy to apply the fullness of that to me again in a renewed way because here I am wandering on. And I need that grace to pick me back up and place me on the path of life because I see that otherwise I'm just lost in an emptiness that can never satisfy. And so we're renewed in this, in this truth even as we think about these things. Maybe this morning, maybe you're feeling just particularly spiritually dry. Or maybe this morning you're feeling uh, weighed down by emptiness that, that hasn't brought relief. Maybe, maybe you've just had a sense of distance from God in general. This is, this is a very good place to begin what we have uh, so far in this text. We, we can pray something like, like, Father in heaven, I'm in distress. Father in heaven, I know you hear me when I call. And I, and I recall how you sent your son to pay for my sins, to bring me freedom, to purchase divine power for holy living. And I need you to rescue me anew for Jesus' sake. Samuel wouldn't want us to call this his retirement sermon. That would sound like something to stop it. Samuel would want us to call this his renewal sermon. He's calling, calling and calling to recall the works of God and find the life that is ultimately found in him. Even from the darkness, in him we find the deliverer that we need. Let's pray. Father, as we consider this truth, and then again in a couple of weeks when we return to it, we ask that you would be working renewal in us. <clears throat> would you bring to mind your acts of kindness toward us, even through uh, darker seasons, seeing that we're ultimately brought again to see our only hope is in you. Uh, we think of this as, as, we, as we even sing amazing grace and recognize how it's your grace that taught our heart to fear and then grace our fears relieved. We recognize our farness from you at times, but then your great kindness to us in bringing us from those places of distress to places of peace in Christ. And we ask that you would uh, do that for us in a, in a renewing way uh, as we as we go about our days. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.